This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. Last week, my guest was Gene Coyle, former CIA agent, later Indiana University professor of practice, and now a spy novelist. Our conversation went on far longer than this program's normal 28-minute length, so, as we do so often around here, we're turning the Coyle chat into a two-parter, and today we'll listen to the second half of the interview. But first... How about we enjoy a very appropriate musical interlude? Back in the mid-1960s, when Gene Coyle was just a young man, trying to figure out who he was and what he would do with the rest of his life, a singer-songwriter named Johnny Rivers put out a string of top 40 hits, including Memphis, Mountain of Love, Poor Side of Town, and Baby, I Need Your Lovin'. In 1964, a British TV spy series called Danger Man was imported to the United States and retitled Secret Agent. The American producers wanted a catchy theme song and commissioned P.F. Sloan and Steve Barry to write it. They came up with a 15-second hummable piece, and eventually Johnny Rivers was hired to sing it. The theme song became so popular across the country, especially in those days of movie espionage operatives like James Bond, Derek Flint, and Matt Helm, as well as television's John Drake, the eponymous secret agent, and Emma Peel and John Steed of The Avengers, that Rivers expanded the theme and turned it into a full-fledged hit single. It reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1966 and quickly became the tune most identifiable with Johnny Rivers. Here he is singing Secret Agent Man. There's a man who leads a life of danger Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. They've given you a number and taken away your name. That you find A pretty face can hide An evil mind Oh, be careful what you say Or you give yourself away Odds are you won't live to see tomorrow
continue with part two of our conversation with former CIA field operations officer Gene Coyle. Today he'll tell us about his classroom days teaching at Indiana University and IU's continuing adult education program, Mini University. Coyle also shares recollections of communicating with foreign agents via secret marks on telephone poles and making dead drops and brush exchanges. This is Big Talk. I've been a speaker at Mini University for about 10 years or so. And uh, I, I get lots of people who show up for my talks, ranging from why did Pearl Harbor happen or to more current topics. But very few things that I get asked and, and, and just getting even more off track, I love talking to the older crowd that comes to Mini University. As I joke with them, I said, you know, first of all, none of you showed up for class in your pajamas. <laughs> and, and secondly, you know, when I, when I talk about Pearl Harbor, you, you don't think that's the name of, of some rock group. Uh, <laughs> So it, it was nice talking to the, the older crowd who'd seen enough of history that they had some idea. And, but the, the thing I would get across, be it the river cruises, be it uh, mini university or in my classes, if you do not understand the underlying intelligence world that's going on, you generally don't really understand world history. It wasn't until 1974 that the British and American governments admitted that we had broken the German codes during oh, World yeah. War II. Yeah. So, so for like 20 years, there'd been all these books written about how uh, General Montgomery and General Patton and so-and-so were so brilliant and so clever well, it's a lot easier to be clever when you know a day in advance what the orders are that right. Lynn had sent to the German generals. A, a more modern sort of thing was that the CIA had recruited a Polish colonel uh -huh. during the Cold War who had provided to us and us to the rest of the U.S. military uh, the complete order of battle and for every Soviet East European troop. Yeah. We knew exactly where their depots were. We knew where their three command and control bunkers were. Had you had a World War III shooting match, 
the NATO troops would have just hammered the entire uh, Warsaw Pact because we knew everything in advance. There was a case in Moscow in my days, which I was involved a little bit in the handling of, and this fellow provided to the U.S. government the design plans for the next generation Soviet fighter. We gave those plans to the U.S. Air Force. They gave not the plans, but they just coincidentally told McDonnell Douglas, oh, the new jet you're designing for us, make sure it turns at this radius. Make sure it can fly to this height. So we managed to build the next generation of American fighter plane that could fly faster, turn better, radar work two miles further. Again, had you wound up having dogfights, the American pilots would have just cleaned the sky. But how do we know that the other side doesn't have the information that you just talked about? Well, you probably never positively 100%, but we had recruited so many people throughout the Soviet system that we probably would have known. But it, it's, a, it's a game of shadows. It's a game of uh, kind of guessing in the dark. And here, this is something I would tell a number of my students who would talk to me about applying to the CIA. And uh, I would say, look, for me, it was a perfect job. I loved it. I always love seeing what's over the next hill. I loved going to various countries. I like the intellectual challenge. But bear in mind, you're playing God with people's lives. Yeah. If you get caught, you've got diplomatic immunity. For those Russians that I was handling, when they got caught, they got shot. And a number of my students, after I explained that to them, they said, oh, yeah, maybe law school doesn't sound too bad after all. <laughs> yeah. Just stay here in America. Yeah. And, uh go overseas. And I'll, I'll tell what, what, at least one last story here. I had had double bypass heart surgery in early, uh, when we were coming up, it's about six months before 9-11. And so I'm still in the recovery stage of having had double bypass heart surgery. And I'd been told, even by that September, I uh, could not pick up anything over 10 pounds and I sat at a desk and pushed paper around, and then 9-11 happens, and so I volunteered back over into the operational side of things, and I said, I suspect I can be used a lot more somewhere, and I was told yes. About a week after 9-11, I was on a plane going off somewhere where we were trying to kidnap some guys, but I first had to get a medical clearance. <laughs> to be allowed to go back overseas. So I went down to the medical services there. And a young doctor, he's looking at me and he's looking at my file and he says, do I have the right file? He says, you just had bypass heart surgery back at the end of February and you can't lift anything over 10 pounds. And with a perfectly straight face, I said, 
no problem. A fully loaded Glock only weighs eight pounds. <laughs> and he laughed, and he leaned forward, and he signed the, the form. I, I tell that story not so much that I'm such a brave guy, but that right after 9-11, the CIA had gone to a totally wartime footing where you could even get doctors to sign off on uh, travel permits uh, when probably you should not. You've gone farther back than that in your recollections here. You, you mentioned World War II. You have said that the last time there was a black and white global situation was World War II. What did you mean by that? Well, I don't think there was really any doubts that Nazis were bad people. Going to a world war, making all the sacrifices that were made on the home front, you know, everybody was pretty much in political agreement that doing whatever necessary to defeat the Axis powers was a good thing. As the decades have gone by since then, you know, you have the Korean War. And, you know, there's still people who say, did we really have to go there? So what if the Chinese took over all of Korea? What did it really matter? Yeah, yeah. The Vietnam War, very controversial. Even after 9-11, the, the idea of invading Iraq. What, what did Osama bin Laden have to do with Iraq? Uh, like I said, except for the Nazis, there's very few people on the planet who, during World War II or after World War II, would question that it was a necessary war. Right. Well, then, in that case, who are the bad guys on this planet today, 2021? There is nobody in 2021 who is a threat as the Soviet Union was in its heyday, where you really could have had a World War III and people started slinging nuclear missiles back and forth. What goes on a whole lot, as I said, more espionage in America today is done by the Chinese, but most of that is industrial espionage. They're stealing trade secrets. They're stealing scientific information. It's helping the Chinese economy, this sort of stuff. But nobody thinks that China is going to particularly start a war in the Pacific with the U.S. Navy. Same thing with Russia. Uh, Putin uh, has his problems, and he's sort of a jerk. And you may soon uh, have a little war on the Russian-Ukrainian border. But again, you're not going to have Russia firing nuclear missiles uh, on Western Europe or anything. So the, the threats are sort of small time. What, what, what worries me is like North Korea with Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is crazy. When you're dealing with an enemy, but who is a rational sort of enemy, you can count on certain steps, behaviors that they'll probably take in certain circumstances. 
But Kim Jong-un, uh, I'm pretty sure, he's got a nice bunker about 500 feet underneath the Earth. And he doesn't mind starting a nuclear exchange because yeah. he and his 12 relatives that he hasn't shot yet will all go down into that bunker. And he figures he will survive somehow a massive shooting war. Gaddafi in Libya always worried me. And it was really funny. At times, I would have conversations with KGB officers around the world. And after we were on our second bottle of vodka, uh, both the Russian and I would agree that Gaddafi really worried the Kremlin. Wow. Because, same thing, you never know what some crazy guy is going to do that starts a massive war. By the way, as far as the vodka, you know, when I'm talking with uh, former U.S. military personnel, and someone will say to me about, well, you know, thank you for your service. And I said, well, listen, guys, you were out there and people were shooting at you. What I did was I gave my liver for my country. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't even possibly tally up the hundreds of bottles of vodka that I went through with various Russians around the world over the decades. To a Russian, uh, if you're not willing to drink vodka, you, know, you are not a real man worth talking to. So. <laughs> well, my question is, you have lived this exciting, on-the-edge life. You've lived in Lisbon and in Athens and in uh, New Zealand. You've lived in Moscow. All of these tremendous places. And yet, where did you settle down? Bloomington, Indiana. Why? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hick from Indiana. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in Indianapolis. And in fact, the first couple of times I applied to the CIA and I got as far as an interview in Washington, I was finishing up my undergrad the first time. And they, they said, uh, you know, well, Gene, you're obviously a fairly bright young man, but you know, you've never really been anywhere. You're a hick from Indiana. What would we do with you? Wow. So I couldn't find a, a decent job after my undergrad, so I started a master's and did my master's in two semesters, and I applied again. I got back to Washington, and they said, congratulations, you're now a hick with a master's degree. <laughs> Courtesy of some faculty that I had met here at IU, I got this wonderful opportunity to go spend a year in Hamburg, Germany, uh, as an exchange scholar. And when I came back, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try give this one last try at the CIA. And then I'll just become a high school history teacher, maybe coach a little gymnastics. And then, you know, just have a normal old life. And that, that third time when I applied, then I, I was 24 years old at that point. And they said, congratulations, you've been drinking beer in Europe. You're now a man of the world, and we're going to hire you. I was the baby of the career trainee class uh -huh. at that time. Most everybody, the average age was about 27, 28. And what I figured out as the years had gone by 
was the first couple of times I applied at just being 22 or so, they thought I was just too young. For people they want to hire to become the field operations officers, they want you to have done something besides just go to college. Be in the military a few years, just have a real job for a few years. Prove you can do something besides find the library. And so uh, I, I guess it wasn't so much that I was a hick. It was just that I was too young a hick to get hired. But anyway, uh, IU coming down here, I met my wife-to-be here. We, we were married in Beck Chapel, the whole alumni you know, story. And we had always talked about moving back to Bloomington in retirement. And the the teaching thing was just a lucky uh, break. So I did that for 14 years. But then in 2017, I decided I'd, I had done enough. I, I have contributed uh, to making the world a better place, all that I need to. So now I work a little bit on my golf game. I uh, write some spy novels. I've uh, just recently bought, uh, it's only a replica. I couldn't afford a real one, but I bought a 1934 Mercedes-Benz convertible. Wow. And uh, as soon as it finishes being refurbished a little bit so that the engine actually runs, uh, you will be seeing uh, a, (laughs) a pearl white, Mercedes-Benz going down Kirkwood Avenue. <laughs> you can make a parade with Ken Dunn and he in, in, in his Bentley. Yeah. So well, I saw he's got a, a, a shiny new red Rolls Royce now. Oh, my. Yeah, we can have a nice little parade with his red uh, Rolls Royce and my, uh, my pearl white Mercedes going hey. down Kirkwood. Let me tell you something. You're not going to be able to drag race down Kirkwood because they got the streets blocked off a little bit now. Yes, I've been I've been noticing that, and uh, it, it's funny. All the years my wife and I had planned on retiring back here, and even the first couple of years when we got here, we always pictured you know Bloomington, this nice quaint little college town. Yeah, and and sadly that is not the case anymore. I, I saw the last statistics, the poll showed that there are 80,000 people who live in Bloomington. Yep. And, uh, and, and sadly, of course, the city council, they want to build this new convention center and various things. And uh, no, no, it's, it's like politicians are never happy to just leave something alone. Oh, heck no. They, they have to improve it or build it or, my my comment to I happened to have a chance to talk to a city councilman one occasion about this uh, convention center, and I said, "This will never work. You'll never get big conventions to come here." And he said, "Why not?" I, I told him, "I said because we don't have enough prostitutes in Bloomington. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have fifteen hundred, you know, insurance salesmen in Bloomington." Yep. Uh, they're not. They're not all going to just want to sit down at Nick's and drink beer. You mentioned your wife. Your wife also worked for the CIA. What did she do? She was more of a support 
person. She decided she did not really have the personality to recruit a foreign diplomat. Yeah. She would, she would be used at times to go out and handle someone who had already been recruited. And particularly in Moscow, uh, we were often out as a team, which was very important because I happened to be colorblind. And uh, there, there was an occasion, the short version of which, you know, I get back to the embassy and the, the question was, okay, so you saw the crayon mark on the pole. I said, yep, I saw it. And they said, well, was it red or green? Uh-oh. And I said, what do you mean, is it red or green? I was just looking for an X. Uh-oh. And then I had to explain to them that red and green all look the same. I'm both red, green, and blue, yellow, so all my socks match and all my ties look good with all my sport coats. <laughs> it makes life uh, much simpler. But for me, it was, it was a fun life. Uh, I did it for 30 years, and then it's, it's time. That it, I had some colleagues who they would reach the point where they could retire and they did because financially it was better and retire on Friday, come back on Monday as a contractor with some Beltway Bandit consulting firm, but basically doing the same thing. And it was, you know, they were getting into their seventies and they were still doing the same sort of stuff. And to me, I, I enjoyed it, but it's time to move on to other things. And for me, I, I really enjoyed the teaching. My wife and I have stayed in touch with a dozen or so of my former students. We've been invited to several weddings. When these young folks pass back through Bloomington, they let us know that we all have lunch. Uh, we never had children. So in a way, my students were my children. So that's worked out well. And now, on some days, if I feel like working on one of the novels, I do. And if I don't, I find taking an afternoon nap an excellent way to pass <laughs> the, the day. So, so, in fact, as soon as our interview is over, I'm probably going to take a nap. He's living the life. My guest has been Gene Coyle, author gymnast even, has been a classroom teacher, and has been an espionage agent, a field operations officer for the CIA. Gene Coyle, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. My pleasure. Asian man secret. To listen to part one of our conversation with Gene Coyle, go to wfhb.org and click on Big Talk under WFHB Programs.